were all generally flatlining in price. We knew at least one large coal company was going to be a major buyer, but this fact was not reflected at all in the price. So we went long Trinity Industries, which was one of the manufacturers of coal cars. If Trinity had been up dramatically, then maybe the impending increase in the demand for coal cars would have already been priced in. But you could tell from the flat price action that it was not priced in. As another example, in 2007 and 2008, I listened to a number of conference calls with coal, oil, and natural gas companies in which they indicated that they would be deferring their capital expenditures. What do you do then? You go out and you look for companies that are in the capital equipment space selling to those industries because you know their orders are going to slow down. There is a definite opportunity to short those names. In sharp contrast to most long-short funds who experienced significant losses in 2008, you had a very good year. How did you achieve those results? We were short mortgage lenders and a lot of the bank stocks. I listened to the countrywide conference calls every quarter. I remember Mozilla, the CEO, saying that because Wall Street was getting into the business in a major way, the spreads were being cut more and more, and therefore they had to take greater and greater risks. At the same time, default rates had begun to rise. It was clear that the housing bubble couldn't be sustained and that companies like Countrywide and Washington Mutual were good shorts. I didn't know they would go down as much as they did, but I knew there was no way they would be going higher. I didn't necessarily understand the intricacies of the mortgage securitizations, but I realized that the banks were heavily leveraged in this product. On top of that, when politicians are making statements that certain banks deserve to fail, why would anyone want to own bank stocks? I had seen it all before. I had seen a number of big banks go to zero during the SNL crisis. I had seen insiders at these banks buying on the way down. Even they were caught by the greater trend, which they didn't see. Besides being short banks and mortgage lenders, what other trades accounted for your 2008 gains? Energy stocks were a major winner for us in 2008. During the first half of the year, we made money on the long side. Then prices started going way beyond what we thought was reasonable, so we scaled out of our position. When prices went up even more, we started going net short. When energy stock prices broke after the reversal in crude oil, we switched back to the long side around the time when crude had fallen back to the $90 level, which it turned out was way too early. But then we realized that things were getting worse and worse, so we took our losses on the longs, went back short, and played the trend down. Also, we had a lot of days when the market opened up sharply higher and closed sharply lower. One thing I learned as a trader is that if the market, Dow, moves up 400 points in the morning, you usually don't go much further. Every time there was a big rally, we would put our shorts on, and on a sell-off, we would cover the shorts. Nick Davidge, who has been sitting in for the interview, interjects, I annualized our turnover for the second half of 2008, and it was 23x of which 21x was in trades initiated as shorts. When did you transition from a net bearish bias in late 2008 back to a bullish bias? We went long after Obama was elected. There was tremendous disenchantment with the Bush administration at that point. They had lost confidence across the board, including a lot of the business community. Obama was talking about policies to get the economy going. He was going to spend money. He was going to save the states, which were going down big time. No matter what you think of the policies, they were throwing money back into the system, which was bullish. In early 2009, we started looking around for the best business models and balance sheets we could buy. We were looking for stocks with the lowest financial risk, companies that did not need to refinance debt and could ride out a prolonged deep recession. We went long a bunch of the non-debt retailers who had lots of cash and had gotten crushed. Stocks like Gap, which was an $11 stock with $5 in cash and over $1 in earnings. 
We bought Shaw, which had $12 in cash and had fallen all the way to $18. Are there mistakes you learn from as a trader? As an equity trader, I learned the short-selling lessons relatively early. There is no high for a concept stock. It is always better to be long before they have already moved a lot than try to figure out where to go short. What are examples of concept stocks? The Internet stocks in the 1990s and biotech stocks in the late 1990s to early 2000s. How about a current example? The cloud computing companies. When P.E. multiplies get to 50, 60, or 70, you are in the realm of concept stocks. I understand that you do both position trading and short-term trading. Is there something about the way prices move intraday that is helpful in short-term trading? Yes. Do you know what happens in a bull market? Prices open up lower and then go up for the rest of the day. In a bear market, they open up higher and go down for the rest of the day. When you get to the end of a bull market, prices start opening up higher. Prices behave that way because in the first half hour, it is only the fools that are trading or people who are very smart. Sounds like a dangerous combination. Why is there a tendency to open counter to the prevailing trend? When the market closes near the high of the move, there will be some traders who want to sell near the high, and they will be sellers on the next day's opening. Are there any other useful short-term patterns? If there is bearish news before the opening and the market does not trade down much during the first hour, it indicates that the smart money is not selling and that the dip is a buying opportunity. Do you use sentiment indicators in your trading? CNBC is my sentiment indicator. He laughs loudly. It is the best sentiment indicator and it's free. How do you judge sentiment? I judge it based on how the stock moves. If everyone is bearish because that's what CNBC says, that is public sentiment, but if the stock gaps higher after a conference call, that's the market sentiment. What matters is the market sentiment, not public sentiment. I tried to drown out public sentiment, except if public sentiment is so heavily one-sided. How do you judge that? You watch CNBC. What is your opinion on stop orders? They are for fools. Do you want to expound? If you want to ensure that you get the low of the day, use a stop. People tend to place their stops near the same price level, usually at a new recent low. If the low for a stock during the past year has been 30, there will be a lot of stops placed just below 30. If the market trades down to 30, the stops will be hit. And since there will usually be a lack of buy orders at the new lows, prices will gap lower. If we like a stock, we will sometimes try to place our buy orders one half point below where we believe the stops are. If you have a stop order in the market, it means that one price will dictate the outcome. That is a bad concept. You can, however, use mental stops, which are essentially evaluation points. If the stock is down, say, 15%, you should evaluate why it is down 15%, but you shouldn't automatically sell it there. Stop orders may be okay for some public investors, but not for professionals. Stop orders are an outrageously poor way to manage risk. What is the right way to manage risk? The right way to manage risk is to monitor your positions and to have a mental point at which you reevaluate the position. The amount of room you will allow till that point would be different for different stocks. Each stock has its own risk profile. Some stocks could go down 50%, and it wouldn't necessarily mean anything. But for a stock like Coca-Cola, you should be reevaluating it if it moves 5% against you. Don't ever consider yourself right. The hardest thing is to sell on the way down. It's emotionally difficult because you believe you're right or that you will eventually be right. The best way I have found to do it is to begin by selling 20% of the position.
That doesn't hurt, and if the stock comes back, I can still say I was right. If the stock goes lower, I can also say I was right because at least I sold 20% of the stock higher. Is that what you typically do? Scale out of a position? Yes, I scale out and I also scale in. The idea is don't try to be 100% right. So the message is if you can't take the loss, take a little bit of a loss. That way you will never be completely wrong, and you can reassess the situation if the market goes lower. It is also about keeping the portfolio from weighing you down. Sometimes, though, it is best to just liquidate the entire position. It is a good idea to harvest your losses because it forces you to revisit the trade. If you are in the trade, you are always defending it. Liquidating forces you to reevaluate the trade relative to other opportunities. You sold the position. Do you really want to buy it back? Or would you rather put the money on this other idea, which looks a lot better right now? Vidic has to take a break from the interview to check on the markets. I take the opportunity to speak to Davidge who has been sitting in on the interview and probably understands Vidic's approach better than anyone else. Davidge begins by giving his own take of Vidic's methodology. One of the key characteristics of Joe's trading is his willingness and ability to gradually take losses. Joe's comments about the emotional benefits of taking losses incrementally can give you an insight into how he manages portfolio exposure. One point of our conversation that I was particularly confused about was Joe's comments about sentiment. Well, there are two types of sentiment. There is the popular sentiment, as it might be expressed in the media, and then there is the sentiment that is expressed by the market. When Joe talks about sentiment, he is referring to how the market responds to external events. What is the news? What is the price action? That is what generates his view of the markets. A stock being down after a good earnings report would be an example of negative sentiment. That is how Joe thinks about sentiment. I was confused because most people use the word sentiment to refer to some measure of how bullish or bearish the public is. In the popular usage, bullish sentiment is bearish, whereas the way Joe uses the term, bullish sentiment, a more positive response to market news than expected, is bullish. The use of sentiment as a contrary indicator reminds me of a funny story. In 1999, a longtime friend of mine visited me in my New York office. He is a brilliant guy. He went to Harvard, got a Ph.D. at Penn, and ended up doing work on semantics, artificial intelligence, and computer language. I asked him, So, Bill, what are you doing with your investments these days? He answered, I am 100% in tech stocks. I said, Wow, do you really think that is a prudent place to be? Well, he said, I have a lot of expenses and I need the extra return. I thought to myself, If that is the way other people are thinking and acting, we are really in trouble. This is all going to end very badly. That friend, as brilliant as he is, has always been wrong about stocks, and I've used him as a contrary indicator. Vidic returns after about 20 minutes, and we continue the interview. What are examples of market response reflecting positive or negative sentiment? Just recently, Rockwell Automation, ROK, raised guidance for the year, and the stock is down $9. What does that tell you? It tells you even though earnings are currently increasing, smart investors, there are a lot smarter guys out there than I am, are anticipating a major inflection point in earnings in the next few months. Nick had mentioned that you had another portfolio manager working for you last year. I wonder what that experience taught you. It taught me that I didn't need him. Another hearty laugh. Everyone has a different perspective. The person we hired to be a portfolio assistant had an investment style that was completely different from mine. He approached stocks from a business school perspective, looking for the best business models and best companies. 
That is okay, but he didn't have the courage to average down into a position. Also, the stocks that he followed were not the stocks that I followed. As the head portfolio manager, I am also the risk manager and have to follow all the positions. He was hired to help me save time, but I was spending more time following his positions, which interfered with following my own positions. Training someone to think like I do about the markets, which is more like a stream of consciousness, is very difficult. It is totally different from the way they learn to think in business school. What are the trading rules you live by? It is really important to manage your emotional attachment to losses and gains. You want to limit your size in any position so that fear does not become the prevailing instinct guiding your judgment. Everyone will have a different level. It also depends on what kind of stock it is. A 10% position might be perfectly okay for a large cap stock, while a 3% position in a high-flying mid-cap stock, which has frequent 30% swings, might be far too risky. Why do most people fail at trading? To be successful in the markets, you have to be willing to change your opinion. Most people are not willing to change their opinion. You have to be humble about your ideas. What other mistakes do people make in trading? Most people are more afraid of making money than losing money. What do you mean by that? There is no real reason to sell a stock just because it's up 20%. I would argue that when people sell a stock when it's up 20%, it is not because they are afraid of making money, but because they are afraid of losing what they made. Maybe you are right. They're afraid of losing money, but they are only afraid of losing gains. If the stock is down 20%, they are not going to sell it. What they are really afraid of is not being right. That is why they won't sell it when it's down 20%, because that would confirm they were wrong. Recently, my analyst in Texas, who was very good, called me about one of our positions that was way up. He said, we should probably sell some. And why? I asked him. Because we should probably lock some profits in. And why? I asked again. He didn't have a good reason. He wanted to sell to justify his idea and lock in gains on his recommendation. But that is his own world. It has nothing to do with where the stock is going. We had another position that was initially profitable, but then sold off when all the analysts downgraded the stock three days before the earnings report. I thought they must all know something negative and that we should be selling the stock. My analysts couldn't understand why I would want to sell the stock then, right after it had given back all the gains we had made. I wanted to get out because I thought the stock was going lower, and it did. The decision had nothing to do with where we bought the stock or what the current price was. What personal characteristics do you believe you have that allows you to succeed in this business? The willingness to take losses and understand that I may not be right. Do you use objectives on your trades? I have points where I will reevaluate, but it's a moving target. Also, I try not to sell on the way up. I try to sell on the way down. So, if you buy a stock at 40 that you think will be fully priced at 80, I would sell it at 75 on the way down rather than at 80 because I might be giving up much more on the upside than the difference in selling it a little bit lower. Four months later, after listening to all the tapes of our interview, I felt that a number of important questions had either been unasked or answered unsatisfactorily. I conducted a follow-up interview by phone. By the time of this call, July 29, 2011, Bidditch had switched from bullish to bearish. In the week immediately following this call, equities plunged, experiencing their largest single-week decline since the 2008 market meltdown. When I interviewed you a few months ago, you were quite bullish. Now you are bearish. What changed? Part of it was the recent resolution of the debt ceiling impasse, in which the entire reduction of future deficits was based on spending cutbacks without any increase in revenues. 
Spending cutbacks, which primarily impact lower and middle class consumers, will have a much greater drag on the economy than increases in revenues for higher income earners. The Tea Party has also put Obama in a quarter by clearly making it impossible for him to implement any further stimulus if the economy needs it. What else turns you bearish? We are seeing an increasing number of companies whose operating margins are beginning to contract as their input costs increase, and those costs can't be passed on to the consumer. Anything else? When you listen to the numerous conference calls in which the executives are worried about the current economic environment, that sentiment translates into a real impact on business. So the way you interpret sentiment, negative sentiment is bearish rather than bullish. There is a big difference between informed sentiment, like CEOs and investor sentiment. Investor sentiment, however, is usually wrong, at least over the longer term. How do you judge investor sentiment? One way is by listening to my own investors. When I start hearing the same comments from a number of my investors, it is a good reflection of what everyone is thinking. For example, when the retail stocks were getting hammered last year, my investors were all asking, why would you want to own any retail stocks? Of course, that was exactly the right time to own them. That was the bottom of the retail sector. Now that you have switched from net long to net short, what would get you long again? Buying. If all of a sudden stocks stopped going down on bad news, that would be a positive sign. You did extraordinarily well in 1999 and then had an even more amazing 2000. Vidich managed a very small fund before starting the current fund. This fund, which started in October 1999, made 87% in the fourth quarter of 1999 and 147% in 2000. You obviously had to shift from being extremely bullish in 1999 to extremely bearish in 2000. How did you manage to time this transition so well? I didn't switch from being a bull to a bear. First, I switched from being a bull to being hedged because the stocks I was long were up by so much. Once I was hedged, I was protecting my profits, and I began to notice that I was making all my money on the shorts. As more information came out, I realized that I should be selling my longs and keeping my shorts. Do you use charts? Charts are extremely important. One of the best patterns is when a stock goes sideways for a long time in a narrow range and then has a sudden sharp up move on the large volume. That type of price action is a wake-up call that something is probably going on and you need to look at it. Also, sometimes whatever is going on with that stock will also have implications for other stocks in the same sector. It can be an important clue. Does any trade stand out as your most painful experience? If you are diversified enough, then no single trade is particularly painful. The critical risk controls are being diversified and cutting your exposure when you don't understand what the markets are doing and why you are wrong. Has that happened recently? I was long Google at an average price of about $550. It kept going lower, and I couldn't understand why. Finally, I just got out at $505. It went down to about $480 and then it abruptly reversed, surging above $600 in a matter of weeks. Psychologically, that is extremely painful, but you have to be willing to take your hit. Even when you are wrong in taking your hit, it cleans the slate, and cleaning the slate can be very therapeutic. If you don't clean your slate, you will end up keeping your losers. Some stocks with losses will come back, and you will sell those, but the ones that don't come back, you will end up keeping. Getting out sometimes right before a stock turns is the price you pay to keep your losses under control. It is a common dilemma faced by traders. The market is moving against your position. 
You are well aware of the dangers of an unconstrained loss, but you also still believe in your position and are worried about throwing in the towel just before the market turns. You are frozen in indecision. Vidic offers a perspective that provides a solution. Don't try to be 100% right, he says. Instead of making an all-or-nothing decision, when Vidic is faced with a losing position, he will often begin by liquidating part of the position. Taking a partial loss is much easier than liquidating the entire position. It allows the trader to act rather than procrastinate. If the position continues to move against Vidic, he will liquidate some more. In this way, a losing position is gradually reduced and eventually entirely liquidated if it doesn't turn around, mitigating the damage. The next time you are undecided between liquidating a losing position and gritting your teeth and writing it out, remember that there is a third alternative, partial liquidation. A common mistake made by traders is that they let their greed influence position sizing beyond their comfort level. Why put on a 5% position when you can put on a 10% position and double the profits? The problem is that the larger the position, the greater the danger that trading decisions will be driven by fear rather than by judgment and experience. Vidic stresses, Limit your size in any position so that fear does not become the prevailing instinct guiding your judgment. Flexibility is a key characteristic of superior traders. Vidic is a long-term bull in the energy markets, but he doesn't let this view interfere with making the right trading decision. In 2008, when prices moved excessively on the upside, Vidic gradually transitioned from net long to net short. In the subsequent collapse in crude oil, Vidic repositioned himself back on the long side of energy equities once crude had fallen to about $90. But he soon realized that the changing fundamentals and market sentiment implied lower prices and reversed back to the short side. Crude oil prices and energy equities subsequently collapsed. Vidic's flexibility in changing his trading opinion turned a potential major loss into a large winner. Don't make trading decisions based on where you bought or sold a stock. The market doesn't care where you entered your position. When Vidic felt a stock that had just fallen all the way back to where he had bought it was going lower, he just got out, not letting his entry level affect the trading decision. If you are going to control your losses, there will be times when you will get out just before the market turns around. Get used to it. This frustrating experience is an unavoidable consequence of effective risk management. Vidic's discipline in harvesting his losses has made it possible for him to keep his maximum drawdown to single digits for over a decade and through two major bear markets. This impressive risk control, though, could only be achieved because Vidic was willing to accept the fact that he would sometimes end up liquidating losing positions right before they reversed dramatically, as had just happened to him in his long Google position. Chapter 13 Kevin Daly who is Warren Buffett? Who is Warren Buffett is what Kevin Daly thought when queried about the famous investor in an initial job interview in 1983. Finding the answer to this question directly led to the investment methodology Daly employed throughout his career. True to Buffett's investment philosophy, Daly seeks out companies that are selling well below the intrinsic value of their business. He has been extremely successful in applying this methodology. After 15 years of writing equity research and eating his own cooking in his personal stock account, which grew steadily in value with the exception of a losing year in 1994, Daly launched his own fund in 1999. In the 12 years he has been running the fund, Daly has realized an average annual compounded gross return of 20.8%, 16.4% net. Although Daly does some shorting, it plays a relatively minor role. 
usually accounting for less than 10% of assets under management. In this context, Daly's investment approach is closer to a long-only fund. Although he will periodically hold significant percentages of cash, than to a long short hedge fund. Since inception, Daly has earned a cumulative gross return of 872%, 514% after management and incentive fees, compared with only a 68% contemporaneous return for the Russell 2000, the most comparable index given Daly's smaller cap focus, and a negative 9% return for the S&P 500. The ability to generate substantial returns with a near-long-only approach in an equity market that has gone essentially sideways over the long term tells only part of the story. Perhaps the most impressive aspect of Daly's performance has been in his control of losses. Although the equity market witnessed two huge bear phases in which stock indexes were more than halved, Daly's maximum drawdown from an equity peak to an equity low has been only 10.3%. Even more impressive in terms of risk control, with the exception of November 2000 when he lost 6%, all his other monthly losses have been under 4%. Daly's gain-to-pain ratio based on net returns is a very high 3.2. Daly earned a civil engineering degree at the University of Berkeley, but well before he graduated, he realized that he had no interest in his chosen field of study. He was bothered by the lack of creativity in the process. The answers to any specific problem were prescribed. If you knew the formulas, he would plug in the numbers, get the answer, and move on to the next problem. There was a sameness about it that was unappealing to Daly. After graduating, he enrolled in the University of San Francisco's MBA program, thinking that a career in business might provide him with the variation he sought. Daly's first job, and as it turned out only job prior to launching his hedge fund, was with Hofer & Arnett, a boutique brokerage and investment banking firm. He was originally hired as a broker, but this quickly morphed into a research position. Originally, Daly was the only research analyst, but as the firm grew and other analysts were hired, he became the research director. His Five Corners Fund was originally launched within the firm. It is probably more accurate to think of Daly as a private investor than a hedge fund manager. The hedge fund is essentially the private account he would be running if he were on his own, with a structure that allows other investors to co-invest. Daly accounted for about one-third of the invested assets when the fund launched, and still accounts for about the same percentage today. He runs the fund as a solo operation from his home office. Daly is quite happy with this simple structure, and he is downright reluctant to put any effort into raising assets for his fund, as it might necessitate expanding beyond a one-man business. He is loath to complicate what he considers the perfect current arrangement. Daly is a man whose work and hobby are the same. If Daly were retired, I believe his life would be totally unchanged. He would, no doubt, still be spending his day managing his stock account, which would be indistinguishable from the current fund. He would be doing the exact same research and investment management he is doing now. Daly is tall, trim, and very fit-looking. He regularly mountain bikes, his other main hobby besides investing, in the steep hills that sit behind his house. One of the trail junctions, Five Corners, is the origin of his fund's name. Five Corners Partners LP. I interviewed Daly in the comfortable living room of his home in the exurbs of San Francisco. He was relaxed and low-key. I could see him remaining unfazed and sedate even in panic markets. How did you get started in the financial industry? My first interview after graduating business school was at a small regional investment bank. I was interviewed by Alan Hofer, who was one of the firm's three partners.
During the interview, he asked me if I had ever heard of Warren Buffett. No, I answered. Well, what are they teaching you in business school these days, he asked. It was a long interview, and I didn't think I did particularly well. I took mental notes, and after the interview, I started doing my own research. I got Buffett's annual letters. I read up on the companies Huffer had mentioned in the interview. Weeks went by, and I didn't hear back from him. I assumed that was it. Why did you think you did poorly in the interview? Well, for starters, I didn't even know who Buffett was. It reminds me of my first interview after graduate school. I had a degree in economics, but they taught you nothing about the markets. The interview was for a job opening as a commodity research analyst. The research director asked me if I knew anything about commodities. Not really, I said, something like gold. My answer was so bad that I still remember it after all these years. Fortunately, I still got the job because I wrote my way into it. The story about your interview strikes a familiar chord. You come out of an academic background with good credentials, but you know absolutely nothing and can't answer the simplest questions in a job interview. Exactly, that is where I found myself. The prior summer, I took a break after graduating business school to travel through Europe. While traveling, I bumped into a friend of mine who I knew from Berkeley. He had gone to business school at USC while I went to business school at USF. We got together after we returned. We started talking about our job searches, and by coincidence, it turns out we had both interviewed for the same job. He told me they had hired someone else from Berkeley. Neither one of us got the job. They never gave you the courtesy of a call to tell you that someone else got the job? No, they didn't, but it turned out the other person was hired as an investment banker, which was not the position I had interviewed for. After I got back, I called Huffer and said, I'm going to be in the Burlingame area next week, which was a complete lie. Do you mind if I stop by to say hello again? Huffer said it was fine for me to come by. I went in and ended up having lunch with Bob Arnett, who was the other founding partner in the firm. At lunch, I was talking a lot about Buffett and the companies Huffer and Arnett were invested in because at that point I felt well-versed enough to hold my own on these topics. At one point in our conversation, Arnett looked at me and said, Are you telling me all this because you're interested in it or because you think it's what I want to hear? A little bit of both, I answered. The next week I got an offer from them to be a broker. Were you concerned that it was a sales position? I didn't care. I just wanted to get my foot in the door. It was a very small firm. I hoped that if I applied myself, I wouldn't be stuck as a broker. As it turned out, I was only a broker for about two months. Once you started there, what did they have you do? They had me cold calling. Was it difficult? Yes, it was very difficult. Some of the people on my call list were dead. Did you get any accounts? No, I didn't get any. Were you getting frustrated? Yes, I didn't like it at all. After about two months, I started writing research on my own. I covered companies that were not followed on Wall Street, which gave us greater access to managers in the large mutual fund companies. Our focus was on value. Both Huffer and Arnett taught me to look at companies from the perspective of what would a rational businessman pay for the company if he was writing a check today. One interesting aspect of the business for me was that unlike the large brokerage firms that had a salesman between the analysts and clients, we wrote and sold our own research. This structure gave me the opportunity to meet with some of the major mutual fund managers, such as John Templeton, Chuck Royce, and Bob Rodriguez, who were clients. 
I guess these funds directed commission business to you in exchange for the research ideas. Exactly. Did you learn anything from these clients? By coincidence, I was in New York at the time of the 1987 crash. In doing my manager visits on that day, I saw three very different responses to the crash. Some guys, when I walked into their office, were almost catatonic. All they could do was stare at the screen, watching the market evaporate in front of them. They couldn't buy and they couldn't sell. They would apologize for not being able to take the meeting, and I completely understood. I saw other clients who were selling in panic mode. Then I saw Chuck Royce, who took our meeting as if nothing were happening. He sat in an office that had a glass screen divider between him and his trading desk. Each time I finished discussing an idea, he would slide the glass window open and tell one of his traders to buy 50,000 shares. He wasn't afraid to keep buying. The way he responded taught me that you have to stay focused on the value of a business and see past exogenous crisis events. Stocks get cheaper than fair value. It may be painful to buy into a panic over the short run, but over the long run it can pay off if you are buying stocks well below their value. What prompted you to start a hedge fund? I had been doing research for 15 years and I thought I was pretty good at it. I had also been investing in the ideas that I was recommending all along. Starting a hedge fund seemed like a natural outgrowth of what I had already been doing. Also, I was able to start the fund within my own firm. I launched the fund in 1999 with three million dollars, one-third was my own money, and Chuck Royce and friends and family accounted for the rest. When I started the fund, it was right in the middle of the internet craze. I found some good value names in that space. How could you possibly have found value in internet stocks in 1999? I found fiber optic businesses that were buried inside of larger companies. You could buy some of these companies for PEs as low as 11 or 12 and effectively get a free call on the fiber optic portion of their business, which was not reflected in the price. One example was Newport Corporation, which was primarily known as a company that produced test and measurement equipment for the semiconductor industry. When I purchased it in 1999 at the pre-split price of $14 per share, it was trading around 11 times next year's earnings, had a nice balance sheet, and was very capably managed. What most investors didn't realize at the time was that the company contained a division, counting for a quarter of total sales, that produced products used in the fiber optic component manufacturing process. In other words, they made products that helped build the information superhighway. As fiber optic networks were built out, Newport's little division benefited. Sales increased by 80% in 2000, and the share price rose even faster. In 2000, I began taking profits in the 30s, thinking that at those levels the stock had reached intrinsic value. I sold the last of my shares around $100, at which point I thought the stock was grossly overvalued. I failed to appreciate that in a market where internet stocks, with little or even no earnings and minuscule revenues, could magically levitate to stratospheric levels based on silly metrics like sales per engineer. There was no telling how high a real company like Newport could go. Later that year, the stock eventually topped out at $570 per share. I've tried to do that type of investing throughout the fund's life. Looking for companies that are somewhat obscure, not covered by Wall Street, or have a niche business inside the company that no one is focusing on. I used the smallness of the fund to my advantage. 
I can go down to smaller cap values that the larger funds can't look at. What cap range do you focus on? I'm pretty agnostic in terms of capitalization levels. I can go big or small. It is really value that drives my interest. My focus is on buying a company at a discount to intrinsic value, which can be measured in a lot of different ways depending on the business. Market cap is not a factor. Since you are agnostic about market cap, you must have a very large investment universe. About 10,000 stocks. How do you select stocks from such a large list? I use CompuStat and Zacks to screen their lists of U.S. and Canadian stocks. What metrics do you use to screen for stocks that may be of interest? The accounting for financial companies is quite different from that of non-financial companies, so I use different screens for each. For non-financial companies, I use some of the following. Enterprise Value EBITDA Enterprise Value, EV is equal to the company's market cap, the number of shares outstanding times the share price, plus all long-term liabilities, debt and preferred stock outstanding, as well as underfunded pension funds, minus cash. The enterprise value is the amount one would have to pay to acquire the entire business. EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, is a measure of the amount of cash flow the business produces annually. The ratio measures what you are paying relative to what you are getting. I look for companies trading at low multiples of EBITDA. Price to free cash flow. FCF is the money a company has left over after it has paid all expenses and made capital investments. It can be used to pay dividends, repurchase shares, or make acquisitions. The aim is to find businesses selling at low multiples of FCF. P.E. Ratio the current price per share divided by the forecasted earnings. The lower the ratio, the better. EV-EBIT cap rate. This ratio is a twist on the EV-EBITDA metric. However, instead of EBITDA, we use EBIT, earnings before interest and taxes but after deducting depreciation and amortization. At my old firm, Hoffer & Arnett, we used to call EV-EBIT a cap rate similar to a cap rate used to value real estate. We used to argue, why buy a piece of commercial real estate with a 6% cap rate or a bond with a 7% yield if you could buy a business like Macy's with a 20% cap rate? For financial companies and banks, I use some of the following. Price tangible book value. The tangible book value, TBV, is equal to the book value minus intangible assets, such as patents and goodwill. Assuming the loans on a bank's balance sheet have been appropriately accounted for, a big assumption considering the events in the financial industry over the past several years, a bank trading around its TBV would represent the value at which one could theoretically liquidate the bank. The TBV per share, therefore, might provide somewhat of a floor for a bank's value. P.E. Ratio Tangible Common Equity Total Assets This ratio provides a measure of a bank's capital adequacy. The more tangible common equity, the less leverage is employed and the safer the bank is. How many stock names do you end up with after you run your screens? About 200. I also come up with company ideas by reading and talking to friends in the industry. What do you read regularly that is helpful? I read the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and a number of subscription-based newsletters, including 
Wall Street Transcript, Dick Davis Investment Digest, Grant's Interest Rate Observer, Value Investor Insight, Santangel's Review, and Form for Oracle, which provides data on insider sales and purchases. I also use two members-only websites that share investment ideas. Value Investors Club and SumZero. Two other useful websites are Vickers Stock Research, which tracks institutional holdings of individual stocks, and Thomson Reuters, which both aggregates brokerage firm research and provides transcripts of company presentations at conferences and quarterly earnings calls. These transcripts can be particularly useful. I will often read through a transcript more than once looking for upbeat or downbeat comments or signs of evasiveness. Finally, I review SEC filings, 10-Ks, 10-Qs, and proxy statements, and FDIC bank call reports. How do you go from a list of possible investment candidates, your screen list supplemented by the ideas garnered by reading and networking, to selecting actual investments? Then the real work begins, which is the qualitative assessment. What do you look for in the qualitative assessment? The first thing is that an easily understandable business. I focus on companies I am familiar with, what Warren Buffett calls investing with a circle of competence. I avoid difficult-to-understand industries with short and unpredictable product life cycles, such as biotechnology and high technology. I look for good businesses. A good business is one that provides a necessary service or product and has a balance sheet and a cash flow that can sustain it through difficult periods. I also look for companies that other companies might like to acquire due to their market share intellectual property, distribution network, or real estate value. After I have identified a company to research, I will then begin to read through any Wall Street research I can find, especially initiation reports. The reports produced by analysts when they first begin coverage on a company, even if the report is somewhat dated. I find these reports provide great background on a company and the industry it competes in. Frequently, these reports include some background on the company's competitors, as well as tables that compare the company's profitability versus its competitors. Several years ago, I found a company, Insurance Auto Auctions, IAAI, in this manner. I had been reading a research report on Copart, CPRT, a competitor of IAAI's, and found a table near the end of the report that contained CPRT's margins with IAAI's. There was a huge disparity between the two. Both companies acquired wrecked cars from insurance companies, stored them on their lots, and then auctioned them off live or through the Internet to buyers including salvage yards and auto body shops. Although both companies did the exact same thing, IAAI's margins were much lower. After meeting with management and doing some research, I couldn't figure out any reason why IAAI's margins shouldn't increase towards CPRT's levels. In addition, the stock could be purchased for just over five times forward EBITDA and at better than a 10% free cash flow yield. I began to purchase the stock around $15 per share, buying all the way up to $22 per share. Within a year, a buyout firm, Kelso Incorporated, bought the company at $28.25 per share. The general principle is that when there are major discrepancies between similar companies, the profit potential can result in a takeover or be realized by the market. Then when the stock reaches a reasonable valuation, you sell it and move on to the next investment. Good ideas don't come that often, but the wider you cast your net through reading, screening, and speaking with others, the greater the likelihood that you will succeed in finding good ideas.
Can you think of a trade that didn't work that provided a learning lesson? In late 2006, I bought Horizon Lines, which was a Jones Act container shipping company operating vessels primarily between Hawaii, Alaska, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. mainland. Under the Jones Act, all vessels transporting cargo between covered U.S. ports must be built in the U.S., registered under the U.S. flag, manned by predominantly U.S. crews, and owned and operated by U.S. organized companies that are controlled and 75% owned by U.S. citizens. As one can imagine, the Jones Act creates a significant barrier to entry in these shipping lanes, and as a result, Horizon Lines had a substantial share of the market. On the negative side, though, the company also had its share of debt, and a number of older vessels that needed to be replaced. My thinking at the time was that I was investing in a company that had a significant moat around it, and that it would generate a lot of free cash flow, enabling it to deleverage. I started buying shares in the mid-twenties, and in 2007 the stock reached the mid-thirties. However, it was about this time that Horizon Line's shipping volumes began to weaken, which caused the share price to decline, as did renewed market unease over the company's need to replace its older ships. I became concerned about the Horizon Line's ability to generate a meaningful amount of free cash flow, and without it, I was afraid the company's debt load could sink in. Fortunately, I got out above my average cost, and in the process I learned another valuable lesson about the danger of investing in over-leveraged companies. The stock today trades at 24 cents per share. I assume the best value opportunities arise in the most extreme bear markets. If you identify a stock as a buy in that type of market environment, how do you handle the timing of the entry? No bells sound when things get better. I'll never forget speaking with the CFO of Measurement Specialties during the downturn that began in late 2008. A large part of their sales was to auto OEMs. When car sales in the U.S. and around the world plummeted, Measurement's customers chose to draw down their inventories instead of ordering from them and other auto suppliers. As a result, the CFO told me that the phone didn't ring for about a month, their auto customers just went quiet. Unless I assumed that no one was going to buy a car again, I knew that the situation had to change at some point. The company had earned $1.20 a share in 2007. I began buying stock at $3.79 per share in April 2009 and bought it all the way up through the $7. I sold most of my stock in the $14 in early 2010, which was nearly triple my average entry price, but still far too early. The stock eventually reached a peak of $38.98 in mid-2011. Many value stocks stay undervalued for a long time. How do you avoid the value trap? Lots of companies screen as being cheap. I think that it's easy to avoid value traps. The trick is to stay away from companies that can't grow their cash flow and increase intrinsic value. If I think the business is a melting ice cube, like newspapers, yellow pages, and video rentals, to name a few bad businesses, then I won't invest in it, no matter how cheap it is. Conversely, if I invest in a business that can be purchased at a discount to its intrinsic value, and that value is growing, then all I have to do is wait and be patient. As Buffett says, time is the enemy of the poor business and the friend of the great business. Do you hold stocks for a long time? It depends on valuation. As long as the share price doesn't get too far ahead of a company's intrinsic value, I will maintain the investment. What has been your average exposure? I'm mostly long. Typically my longs are between 30 and 90%. My shorts are usually less than 10%. How have you managed to keep your losses so small with such a long biased exposure? 
given that we have had two huge bear markets since you've been running the fund. I watch various economic statistics, including more esoteric data such as weekly rail car loadings. When the data points to a slowdown, I might reduce my exposure. If I am concerned enough, I may even move to almost all cash. This attention to economic indicators helped me in 2002 and in 2008, although in 2010 the same cautionary approach cut my profits. I sold a number of stocks on the notion that the economy was in trouble, and then the Fed initiated QE2, that is, a second phase of quantitative easing, and stocks took off. I was up 13.3% net in 2010, but I would have been up a lot more if I hadn't liquidated in response to my concerns about the economy. I have no regrets, though, because I'd rather miss an opportunity than lose money. During the long bear market in 2000 to 2002, did you have low exposure the whole time? I had very low exposure, and I was very patient. How low? I was almost 90% in cash. For the whole bear market? For most of it. When did you cut back your exposure dramatically? Around the end of the first quarter of 2000. That's right at the beginning of the bear market. What prompted that timing? It was mostly a matter of valuations being very stretched. When did you get back into the market? In late 2000. I thought we had a pretty good washout and valuations were more compelling. Then in November 2000, I had my worst month ever. I lost 6% and I went back to mostly cash. Was it just the large monthly loss that got you back on the sidelines? I think so. I don't like losing money. How long did you stay mostly in cash? Probably till early 2003. What was the all-clear sign for you? It was a combination of the compression and valuations and signs the economy was improving. I was hearing from a number of companies that business was picking up. What was your experience in the 2008 bear market? I took my exposure down, but not nearly as much as in 2000. I was approximately 60 to 70% cash. Did you have any emotional response to the market meltdown? I tried to keep emotions in check. Having a lot of emotion about investing doesn't do you any good. I guess you had pared down to a point of comfort. I just kept on doing my research and focusing on what I knew worked, which is valuation. Certainly in that time period, I also wanted companies with good balance sheets. You have been very successful in keeping your losses small. Is there more to it than just going to cash when the environment is uncertain? It's also the type of companies that I buy, companies with good balance sheets and solid free cash flow. I'm always trying to buy a dollar's worth of assets for 50 cents, which helps limit the downside. How do you decide where to get out of a position? It's valuation-driven. I wait till the stock is fair-valued. Do you ever hold profitable positions beyond what you consider fair valuation? No, I made a lot of mistakes doing that over the years. For example, holding on to a position for a full year for tax reasons and then giving up profits I would have locked in. You want to stay true to the investment process. When I buy a stock, I identify the difference between what I think it is worth and the stock price. Once the share price closes the gap, I sell all or most of it. I sometimes hold on to a small residual position and move on to the next investment. That might take a year or it might take a month. What personal characteristics have allowed you to be successful? I try to stay as unemotional as possible when things go against me. 
What is your advice about investing in stocks? You need to always keep in mind that stocks are units of ownership in a business. If you buy a stock at a good valuation and the price goes down, unless something has changed with the business or business outlook, you should stay the course or possibly even buy more. Conversely, don't get carried away if the stock goes up. You should use the same valuation discipline to decide where you're going to sell. If the stock reaches what you think is fair value, take your profits and go on to the next one. Wouldn't staying the course, let alone buying more, be a dangerous prescription if we are in a bear market? That's different. I was talking about price fluctuations in a single stock. I know how to analyze companies. I don't know how to analyze the economy. Why do you think you are managing so little money when your return slash risk is better than most equity hedge fund managers? That is an easy question to answer. I'm a lousy marketer. I've never actively marketed the fund. I prefer to look for good investments as opposed to new investors. Also, at my current level, I can make a decent living without the headaches that come with building a larger firm. When I was on the sell side, I used to be responsible for hiring and supervising analysts, and I never enjoyed that quite as much as looking for companies to invest in. Claude Debussy said, Music is the space between the notes. Analogously, the space between investments, the times one is out of the market, can be critical to successful investing. Despite being primarily a net-long equity investor, Daly achieved cumulative gross returns in excess of 800% during a 12-year period when the broad equity market indexes were essentially flat. How did he do it? Well, of course, superior stock selection was an important component, but it is not the entire answer. Not being invested, that is being primarily in cash, during negative environments is the other part of the answer. By not participating in the market at the wrong times, Daly sidestepped most of the large drawdowns in equities during two major bear markets, a crucial factor that underlies the large growth in his equity. Sometimes, being out of the market may be nearly as important to success as the investments made. Whether you are a value investor, as Daly is, or use some totally different investment or trading approach, the critical lesson is that it is important not to be involved in the market when the opportunities are not there. A corollary to the ability to be out of the market is the importance of patience to successful investing. You need patience to stay on the sidelines when the environment is adverse to your approach or when opportunities are lacking or suboptimal. Think of the patience it required for Daly to remain largely in cash well over two years in the prolonged 2000-2002 bear market. Daly's stock investing methodology and philosophy can be summarized as follows. Stick to business you understand. Find companies in those businesses that are undervalued via via the pertinent metrics or similar competitors. Take profits when prices move up to fair valuation levels. Sail into a cash harbor when the market seas turn stormy. Stick to the basic process and never take flyers. Treat investments as a business, not as a gamble. Daly has one important edge that is also shared by virtually every reader of this book, small asset size. Daly manages only $50 million, which is small by fund manager standards. This smaller size allows Daly to range broadly across the capitalization spectrum, including companies that would be too small to trade if he were managing several hundred million dollars, let alone billions of dollars. Some of the best opportunities have come in these smaller cap issues. Daly fully understands the advantage of managing smaller assets, which is one reason why he has made virtually no effort to raise additional assets.
Individual investors may feel they are at a major disadvantage to large hedge fund managers, but they actually have an important advantage. Their small trading size allows them to move in and out of positions, even less liquid equities, with virtually no market impact. The larger the assets, the more difficult it is for a manager to enter and liquidate positions without incurring significant slippage costs. Also, as the assets managed grow, the universe of possible opportunities shrinks. For large hedge fund managers, many markets and securities cannot be traded, simply because the size at which they could trade these markets and still have adequate liquidity is too small to have much impact on their portfolio, and hence not worth the bother. Although some managers have been able to maintain performance with large assets under management, I have also seen many managers who did very well while trading smaller asset levels, but then experienced significant performance deterioration when they allowed their assets to grow beyond the optimal level for their methodology. For managers, the discipline to turn down additional investor assets when they believe it would impede their performance is an important element in longer-term success. Chapter 14 Jimmy Balladimus Stepping in front